at this time, I want to encourage each of you to turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of Genesis, chapter 3, as we continue where we left off. Yes, we offer the scripture on the screen, but there's nothing like a printed version of the Bible for memorization, for actually studies have been done. You can read faster on printed page than, than on a screen, and uh, it's, you can't mark up something as, as well as you can on, on your Bible. And you don't honor God's word by keeping it pristine. You honor God's word by reading it. Like, if you have a life Bible, that's great, but when you die, it should be like this worn-out, haggard thing that has lots of notes and marks in it. That's, that's a gloriously well-used Bible, okay? So make that your aim. Don't die with a pristine Bible, okay? All right, that's just a little challenge there. All right, so now we're going to pick up where we left off. For the next two weeks, we're going to be considering the fall. And today, we're going to look at the first part, temptation and sin. And we're, going to, and we're going to talk more about that in a second. So Genesis 3, verses 1 through 7 today. The Holy Spirit, through his servant Moses, writes the following. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman... Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Brothers and sisters, this is God's word for us. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the living God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this word. Lord, this passage contains bad news. In fact, it is the bad news. But yet you present it to us within a context of the glorious hope of forgiveness and reconciliation. Help us to be diligent to understand. And specifically, as your people, whose eyes have been opened, help us to understand that we might live resisting the pull of temptation. Grant that by the Holy Spirit we would not be enslaved to the power of sin. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. 
Well, brothers and sisters, I don't have to tell you, but the world is a mess. And I don't just mean now with the shenanigans and political going on. The world is in a heap of trouble. Trouble defines every age. Okay, it has been centuries now where philosophers have formally decried the, all the suffering and badness and wickedness in the world. And then, of course, the solution, according to man, is to deny that God is either good or all-powerful. The problem you see with the world is that it's God's fault. He either can't or won't do something about it. But the reason we have all this messed up suffering is it's God's fault. The world is a mess, you know. I don't have to tell you about that. The world is a mess out there, and we all know it. But the world is a mess in here, and we all feel it. Each of us feels the same angst, the same anger, the same alienation, the same frustration that when you extrapolate it outwardly and multiply it across thousands of people, you see the turmoil that we have. You see, the problem, contrary to natural man's mind, is not God. The problem, the reason why the world out there is so messed up is because the world in here is so messed up. You see, I am the problem. You are the problem. We are the problem. Where we are in this book shows us what went wrong. It is the quintessential bad news of the Bible. Prior to this, we are, so, we are shown this glorious picture of the eternal, self-existing, self-sufficient, life-giving one who creates all that is. And we see the beautiful harmony with which the world was intended to operate. And we see mankind, God's image, created male and female, differentiated yet complementary, working together to fulfill the assignment and task that God had given to them. It was precious. It was great. And yet, it did not remain so. And so in these verses, in this chapter, we are shown what exactly went wrong. So on one level, this passage is a historical record. It's telling us what took place back then that affected the way things are now. But this passage is more than simply a historical record. It is a remarkably incisive glimpse into how things work even in our own day. You see, the devil, he's not omniscient. He's not omnipotent. But he's very smart, and he's very powerful. And in one sense, he's very creative with the various devices and, and divinations he comes up with. But in another level, his playbook is remarkably the same. In a very real sense, 
What we see here in Genesis 3, in addition to being what actually happened back then, it's kind of a playbook as to how he operates with sin to entice us. How he uses temptation and, and the specific ways that temptation works and appeals to us. So it, what I'm saying is that not only does this tell us how things happened, it tells us how things happen. And so what we're going to be looking at today are not the, the fantastic details that sometimes pique our imagination. So a legitimate question that sometimes gets asked, and, and the text is not interested in addressing it at all. Was this actually a snake? Or, or was it like the devil masquerading as a snake? Was, was it possessed? Or, or did this snake actually volitionally fall, sin, and side with the devil... How did that happen? Now, I tend to think that it was that it was an the, a serpent as an agent of the devil, but it's very clear in three fifteen that when it says when God gives the great proto evangelion the first glimpse of the gospel in the Bible, I will put enmity between you. And the woman in between her seed and your seed, and he will crush your head and you will bite his heel. Okay. He's not describing ongoing enmity between people and snakes. He's talking about a spiritual battle. And of course, when, if there's any confusion about that, when, when Jesus came, he didn't start an eradication program to get rid of snakes. Okay, so... While the devil and his agent may have assumed the form or made use of a serpent, nonetheless, the problem wasn't the flesh puppet. The problem was the spiritual force behind it. And that's what is addressed. Nor are we told, how does this snake talk? Was it audible? I, I, I don't know. It, it, it doesn't matter. You know, I, I watch a lot, I've seen a lot of animals in the wild, and they somehow communicate. And if you watch lions on the hunt, they, can, they, they know how to coordinate an attack. But yet, they don't make a noise. Is, is there some sort of telepathy that they have? Were, were first man and first woman, prior to the effects of the sin, able to communicate with nature the way nature is able to communicate with nature? I don't know. But in a very real sense, it doesn't matter. The point is, is that this snake is talking and they're not surprised by it. What matters is what is said, not that it's said. Okay? So there's lots of articles, lots of stuff out there that will pique your imagination and curiosity. Uh, I chalk this up to mystery that this is what heaven is for, part of what heaven is for, to unravel these things that we don't know now. And I look forward to asking, and I pray that perhaps I'll get an answer. But for now, I'm going to focus on what God does say. And what he does say is that sin does not come 
with an open hand. It comes through a gloved hand. In this passage, what we see is how sin operates. Temptation is real, and temptation can be from within, or it can be from without. Now, prior to the fall, Adam and Eve did not experience internal temptation. It was external. Just like Jesus' temptation is of the external variety. He doesn't have a sinful nature in him pulling him towards something. He was, uh, he was pulled and enticed by an external agent. And many, many theologians and Bible scholars have, have wondered, did they actually sin like the, the first moment they started questioning God? The Bible does not go there. The Bible places the first sin at the eating of the forbidden fruit. Why? Because humanly speaking, prior to the fall, they did not have a will that was inclined to sin. So in a true, in a true manner of speaking, they were an open, unwritten blank slate. Up until the moment they ate, up until the moment they did the very thing God said not to do, their humanly speaking was a big question mark, will they or won't they? And so that is why scripture stops at they ate. And that is when they become transgressors. That is when they are guilty before God. So we don't need to try to go deeper than scripture. They became sinners at the eating of the fruit. But nonetheless, sin works by virtue and by manner of temptation. Very rarely does a sin come along and just knock you in the head and you just do it. You typically need to be enticed to do it. And sometimes the enticement happens so quickly that if, you're to detect, if you are to detect that you were even allured at all, you actually have to put it on slow motion and go forward frame by frame. But in this case, we see how temptation works, and it works through subversion. The serpent asks questions. And we're told that an inquisitive mind is good, and in many cases it is. But make no mistake about it, questions are a form of subversion. When you're questioning, you're challenging. When you question something, you're taking a backhanded way of negating. Questioning is a powerful thing, which is why totalitarian regimes do not allow it. Because it's so very rarely that our questions are of a purely intellectual nature. And so the devil, or the serpent, questions. It questions God's word. It questions God's character. And you see that, that questioning is the negative side. It, it makes you doubt the goodness, the accuracy, the rightness, the truthfulness of whatever it is you're affirming. But it doesn't just do the negative of 
causing doubt. It also promises. So where it seeks to take away, it then offers the replacement. Because your heart does not like a vacuum. You can't just take away. It would create an imbalance. And so temptation offers a positive. What do I mean? Well, let's look and let's see. The devil questions. Did God really say? Now, really say. You can almost hear the, sh the feigned, shocked disbelief at the impropriety the, uh, of, of what God is purported to have said. Did God really say? As if this is unbelievable. Did God really say that you can't eat of any tree of the garden? And right there, he has introduced the question about the certainty and accuracy of God's word. What did God say? And Eve gets a lot of bad press. And maybe she should. But she does, frankly, what lots of people do in the Bible. And we do it all the time. You know what that is? Paraphrase. But you see, here's a problem with paraphrasing. And, and many commentators point it out. She's not to be faulted for totally fundamentally changing what God said. The problem with paraphrasing is that inherent in the paraphrase <coughs> is the perspective of the person making the paraphrase. And that leads to the bias of the one who's doing it. When what is called for is a precise recollection. It's one of the things that the devil will do time and time again is he will exploit an imprecise understanding of what God has said and what God has promised and what God has threatened. There is a reason why the word of God calls us time and time again to memorize to know the exact words. I mean, the law is so specific. You would think he's talking to a, to a three-year-old. Don't take one step to the left or one step to the right. You step right here. Precision matters because if you are unclear, it will be exploited. Now, what does she say that is unclear? That is a good paraphrase, but still imprecise. Well, you can see what she says in verse 2 and 3. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you should not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Is that like a gross mess up of what God said? No. But in three ways. She has fundamentally changed what God said, which when you take into account the bias and perspective of the one holding the paraphrase, it presents God in such a way that an enemy can exploit. 
And let's see what that is. First of all, she says, we may eat of any tree in the garden. Okay, that's verse 2. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. What she has subtly done is degraded the generosity, the expansive generosity of God. How so? Well, what did God say back in chapter 2, verse 16? You may freely eat of every tree in the garden. Again, it's not that she's grossly changed, but by, by taking away the notion of freely eat, which implies expansive unhinderedness, we may eat. In other words, we can get our sustenance. It's a subtle shift. So not only does she downgrade the graciousness of God's provision, but then she expands the prohibition. She famously says, we may not eat of the tree, but we also can't touch it. And we all know that God said nothing about not touching it. Now again, it's like playing with mushrooms in the woods. I told my kids, because they're poisonous, don't eat it. But then I said, don't touch it. Now, it could be that that's how she remembered it. It could be that that's how Adam communicated it. We don't know, but we do know that in so doing, she has not only on the front end downgraded the freeness of God's provision, but she has enlarged his restrictive prohibition. So you see the picture this is starting to paint, right? And then the third thing, she says, and this is important, she says, you shall not eat of it or touch it lest you die. Or some versions will say, or you'll die. But what the Hebrew text is conveying by what she says when you compare it to what God says is she has downgraded the threat. It is as if God is giving a warning like this, like don't play in the street or you'll get hit by a car. We usually say that, we'll, you'll get hit by a car, even though it's not 100% certain they will, it's just a possibility. As if this could happen to you lest you die, this could happen to you if you eat it. Is that what God said? So when you have a picture here that's being painted by imprecision, that God's graciousness is being downgraded or downplayed and, and his prohibition is being enlarged and expanded, and then the consequences for disobedience are downgraded from you will surely die. Downgraded to what amounts to a you could die. Well, Hmm. But then here's what's funny. Right at the moment where the devil has now heard her say it, this is the command as she understands it. And this command includes the basic framework 
with which he's going to paint God as a miser holding out on her. And do you see it in how she, how she conveyed it? God's graciousness is diminished, his restrictiveness is enhanced, and his, and his threat level has gone down substantially from you will surely die to you could die. The devil, by that one question, has laid out his next plan of attack. So that's what you have to understand also, is the devil is a living creature. Demons, spiritual forces are living things that respond. The devil planned his attack based on how she responded. Think of how this all would have gone down differently. If out of the gate she had had a faithful word-for-word understanding of what God had said, it would have communicated that she understood the freeness of everything she has here. It would have communicated that she understood the specific thing that that God had said she couldn't do, and it would have communicated that she clearly understood what God would do. been said that if Adam and Eve were from Louisiana, they would have ignored the fruit and ate the snake. (laughs) Kind of wish they had, but they didn't. Instead, they had a dialogue, or she had a dialogue. Have you ever wondered, what was the point of that tree? It didn't have to be made. Why did God make that tree and put it right there in the middle? I mean, come on. Given a fallen world, you know it's practically an invitation. Put it there and then said, don't eat of it. What do you think the point of that was? Well, I'll tell you what the point of it was. To remind them that this is his world to remind them that although they are the crowning jewel of creation, that though they exist as God's vice regents over the earth and they have been given free sway to shape the earth, they were given the freedom to drain swamps, reroute rivers, cut down forests, plant fields, raise. They could do anything. They were told to subdue and have dominion and to populate the earth. Go at it. But even though you have been given such authority and such freedom, you are still a contingent being and you still exist under authority. You see, the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was there to remind them that they are not God. To remind them every day that though they have everything they could need, they nonetheless have it at the gracious hand of the one who made them. Which is why when the devil then has his second pronged point of attack based upon her fuzzy answer, which, which made it easy for him to paint God as a miser holding out on them, 
After having questioned the word of God, the devil then moves on to question the very character of God. When he says, what? You will not surely die. And here's where she should have been like, what? You know things that you shouldn't know. It's like when a police interviews someone and someone like said, I never told you that. The devil actually responds not with what she said, but it's a word for word of what God had said. He knew fully what God had said. Isn't it a shame that the devil oftentimes knows God's word more than us? And he will exploit it. He'll put his words as God's words in your head. Know the Bible. All right? So he says, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, you'll become like him. The very thing that the tree was there to remind them they weren't is suddenly the instrument by which the devil says, you know what, you know, you know all the power and glory that is his, it'll be yours. And God just holding out on you. He told you you would die, but you'll have the world. God doesn't want your best. He wants you to keep being in existence as a dependent, contingent being. Actualize yourself and go for the gold and grab the trophy. And it stuck with Eve precisely because the chink in the armor was made by her own paraphrase of God's word. So, temptation works by subverting our understanding of who and what God is and has said. It creates doubt that's how Eve was tempted. Now, the word of God tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 1 Timothy chapter 2 that Eve was tempted and then she fell and became a transgressor. But you know what? Well, that does not mean that all women are gullible. It doesn't mean that men are not gullible. You, people get tricked all the time. Okay, But she's an active participant in this. But it's true that when it comes to laying the blame for the predicament of the human race, the Bible lays it squarely at the feet of one person. And who is that? Adam. By one man, sin entered the world. You see, Adam's sin was a little different. And, and here we see in the two people the two key characteristics of not only how sin works, but what sin is. You see, when, when Eve was tempted, she was caused to doubt God's word and God's character, and so her sins came from having unbelief 
She was presented with an alternative set of facts. She didn't believe the set of facts she had heard, and so she fell. Sin is, at core, unbelief. We see this time and again in Scripture. How long will these people refuse to believe in me? Sin is, at core, unbelief. But then in Adam, we see an entirely different thing, and in a very real sense, his sin is worse. Why? Well, the text is silent about him, except that he's there with her and he just eats. Who is the one who actually was told by God not to eat of the tree? Adam. Who was the one given the assignment to work this place, to subdue this place? Who? Adam. He was the great priest in the garden, this proto-temple of God, and priests are charged with maintaining the purity of the sacred space. That is what they do. And this foul, perverse creature comes in here, and he knows full well the command of God. He knows his role to lead and to shepherd his wife. And what does he do? He just eats. You see, his sin is not the sin of being deceived. His sin is the sin of rebellion. He straight up said, I'm not going to do what God said. And this is why whenever you look at the sin word groups about in in, in Hebrew and in Greek, All of the sin, the words for sin and the sin-like words and those word groups, they all have in common the idea of having departed from a standard. This idea of sin as rebellion, this idea of sin as apostasy, of falling away. It's used in political terms of the day to refer to traitors. They apostatize, they fall away, they rebel. They leave the standard. They violate the rules. They go out from. And so here we see then why Adam is charged and not Eve. He was the great priest. He was the one with whom the covenant was made and his sin was a full knowing rebellion. And so sin and death entered the world because of his action. But there you see what sin fundamentally is. Unbelief and rebellion. Don't paint it as brokenness. Don't paint it as as mere boys will be boys foibles. Just human frailty. Nobody's perfect. It is unbelief. And it is rebellion. That is how the word of God. And once you understand your sin in those lights, that it is unbelief and rebellion, then you have the disposition in place where you can actually then cry out to God, save me from my wretched self because I'm not believing and I'm not obeying. 
And that is precisely what the Holy Spirit helps us with. You see, sin still works this way. There's a Puritan, Thomas Brooks, he wrote a book called Precious Remedies Against the Devices of Satan. It's my first and favorite Puritan book. And he, he does a great job of showing how the devil, he always, always, always follows the same basic pattern of causing us to question and doubt the good things God has said to us. And he offers us, if you do this particular sin, this is the promise of reward that you will get. Sometimes it's you'll feel good. Sometimes it's you'll get out of trouble. Some, whatever the promise is. And you have to understand and recall God's word. Do not let anything cause you to question what God has said. Know it. Love it. Make it your heartbeat. Not just his rules and precepts, which are, which are good and life-giving, but his promises. The way that you say no to the promises of the devil is by recalling to mind the superior and more long-lasting promises of God. So brothers and sisters, with the first sin and the world of ruin into which we were plunged, we see the basic paradigm for how sin works in us. We're offered something, even as the devil causes us to question and doubt. It's only by the grace of the Holy Spirit that we can fight this. And we can. Because when Jesus died and rose again, he set us free, not only from the penalty of sin, but he sets us free from the reign and power of sin. Progressive sanctification is the Holy Spirit makes you progressively holy throughout this life. It is a war, but it is a war in which the victory is sure. Let's pray.